Jeff's Midweek Bible Study, a verse-by-verse teaching through the Bible with Pastor Jeff Lassane. We hope this podcast encourages your faith, and now here's Pastor Jeff. Hey everyone, welcome to the Midweek Bible Study Podcast. It's great to have you listening in. If you watched the Super Bowl recently, you probably saw the commercials for He Gets Us. The He Gets Us organization identifies itself as a movement which seeks to reintroduce people to the Jesus of the Bible. It oftentimes speaks of reaching those who have felt marginalized by the church and seeks to help people understand that Jesus gets us and that he identifies with us. Interestingly, as I read several responses on social media the morning after the Super Bowl, it was definitely a mixed bag of opinions. Some people were upset that religion was being pushed during the course of the game, which is actually kind of funny to me since both teams have several players that openly proclaim their faith in Jesus Christ, including both quarterbacks. Others on social media applauded the commercials and were excited to see a televised effort that sought to connect people to Christ. Others were concerned that while this campaign seeks to draw people to a Jesus who understands us, inspires us, and has left us with a good example to follow, that it also minimizes the divinity of Jesus, the need for repentance for salvation, and the full teachings of the Word of God. Now, the reason I bring this up is not to give you my opinion on the He Gets Us movement, but to say that I have seen a strong correlation in our next passage in Mark's gospel. And so as we return to Mark chapter 8, we'll read about Jesus giving sight to a blind man, and then Jesus asking the disciples, who do you say that I am? And so then, according to that passage that we're going to read and the stories in them, the question there isn't, does God get us, but rather, do we get him? In fact, I'm going to make that the title of this message, Do We Get Him? To those who wonder if Jesus gets us, on the authority of Scripture, I can say that he most certainly does. That goes for believers and non-believers alike. He has gotten us from the very beginning. He created us. He died for us. He rose again for us, and he promises us eternal life if we will embrace him by faith as Savior and Lord. You know, if I were teaching the last three verses right now in Hebrews chapter 4, I'd be tempted to title my message, He Gets Us, because we read of Jesus that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Therefore, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. And so let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So let me say with 100% assurance, he gets us. But the greater question remains, do we get him? That's what Jesus asked the disciples. By the way, that question is just as relevant today as it's ever been before, because a Barna Group report, a recent one, reveals that while 65% or about two-thirds of Americans identify as being Christians, 
only 6% of them hold a worldview that lines up fully with Scripture. So we have to wonder, when it comes to Jesus, do we actually get him? So let's go ahead and begin our reading. We're going to pick up in verse 22 of Mark chapter 8. Then Jesus came to Bethsaida, and they brought a blind man to him and begged him to touch him. So he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of town. And when he had spit on his eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked him if he saw anything. The man looked up and said, I see men like trees walking. Then Jesus put his hands on his eyes again and then made him look up. And he was restored and saw everyone clearly. Then Jesus sent him away to his house saying, Neither go into the town nor tell anyone in the town. This seemingly simple story has many unique characteristics about it, I think, that are worth noting. First off, it's part of Jesus' final public ministry up in the Galilee area. He would return briefly at the end of the next chapter, but it will be quietly with his disciples, dealing with them privately. And so moving forward, Jesus would be setting his face towards Jerusalem and towards his divine appointment on a cross. Secondly, this miracle is only recorded in Mark's gospel. In fact, it bears uh, similarities to the previous miracle that Jesus did in chapter 7. In that miracle, again only recorded in Mark, Jesus had taken a deaf man aside from the crowds and healed him privately. But here now, Jesus takes a blind man away from the crowds and heals him privately. Thirdly, it's the final miracle that Jesus did in Galilee chronologically. As I mentioned before, his public ministry in Galilee was coming to a close and this would have been his last miracle there until after his resurrection. Fourthly, it's the only healing of Jesus that took place in stages rather than instantaneously. Jesus did this particular miracle in the process of two different touches. So putting all those factors together, it, it definitely makes this a unique miracle. Well, let's take a look at this account then, but step by step. It took place in Bethsaida, where the ministry of Jesus was previously met with wholesale unbelief. Not far from Bethsaida, Jesus had fed the 5,000. We remember that, not including women and children, perhaps a crowd of upwards of 20,000 people. But when Jesus spoke about being the bread of life afterwards, the majority of people turned away from him. So, Based on the previous experience, it may explain why Jesus took this man aside away from the town and healed him away from the people. Like the deaf man in chapter 7, the blind man was brought to Jesus by others. It's very poignant and moving to see how Jesus personally took him by the hand and led him out of town. Then twice Jesus put his hands on the man for healing. We have to remember that in this Jewish culture, the religious elite made every effort to avoid touching people like this, people who were sick, handicapped, or demon-possessed, so as not to become defiled. But Jesus did not hesitate to touch him or others as well. In this healing, like the previous one in chapter 7, Jesus used his saliva in the process. We don't know why exactly, but you know what we do know from the Gospels is that Jesus never healed people in exactly the same way. He used spit and he used mud. Sometimes he touched people, sometimes he didn't. 
People were brought to him and he went to others. He healed people in his presence and healed people at a distance. He healed both Jews and Gentiles, men and women. The only consistent factor was that Jesus healed everyone that wanted to be healed. Now, if you're taking notes, our first point from this first story is the evidence of who Jesus is. As we ask the question, do we get him? The evidence clearly demonstrates that he is God. Only God can heal everyone like Jesus did. Only God can do the miracles that Jesus did. And only God can raise people from the dead like Jesus did. Therefore, much more than just being, oh, what, a good example or someone who is misunderstood like so many of us or a good inspiration for our lives, the evidence demands the conclusion that Jesus is God come in the flesh. After touching the man the first time, Jesus asked him what he could see. The man answered and said, I see men like trees walking. (laughs) I had a Christian friend years ago who had a tree business. He was having business cards made up, and he asked me what I thought a good verse might be for him to put on his cards. So I suggested Mark 8.24, I see men like trees walking. Well, he laughed, but wisely went a different direction. The fact that this blind man spoke of men and trees means that he probably wasn't born blind, but had become blind later on in his life. If he had been born blind, then he wouldn't know what men or trees look like. The men that he sees here would have been the disciples. Jesus had walked this blind man out of the town and away from all the other people. So when he saw men like trees, he would have been looking at the disciples who were with Christ. And describing them as being like walking trees meant that his sight was partially restored, but blurry. Then after Jesus touched him the second time, he saw everyone clearly. Interestingly, Mark uses two different words for eyes in verses 23 and 25. The first word in verse 23 refers to the eyes in general, while the second word in verse 25 refers more to the vision of the eyes. In fact, the second word in the Greek is ophthalmos, from which we get our English word ophthalmology, the medical science that deals with eye disease. So once again, this man was apparently not born blind and may have suffered some sort of eye disease, which caused him then to become blind. Jesus then restored his sight and the man could see clearly, literally, he could see perfectly. Jesus not only healed him, but blessed him with 20-20 eyesight. So why did Jesus heal this man in stages, unlike all his other miracles or healings? Some commentators suggest that there may have been a strong Uh, demonic opposition taking place at that time. Others propose that the man himself was struggling with unbelief, but perhaps this was done in stages by Jesus as a lesson for the disciples. Now remember, just before this healing, Jesus was dealing with the disciples in the boat. Jesus had spoke about the leaven of the unsaved religious leaders. They thought Jesus was chiding them for not bringing bread, and their difficulty in seeing Uh, certain things spiritually was a, a real problem. They saw and understood some things, but many other things were blurry for them, if you will. So it might be possible that as Jesus took this blind man to side, along with the disciples, that Jesus was giving the disciples an illustration of their faith and what they were dealing with. They could see in part spiritually, but they were in that first stage where things were still blurry for them. 
But eventually, everything would become crystal clear for them as well, and they would turn the world upside down with the gospel. Well, let's go back to our reading, and let's pick back up in verse 27, please. Now, Jesus and the disciples went out of the towns of Caesarea Philippi, and on the road, he asked the disciples, saying to them, who do men say that I am? So they answered, John the Baptist. But some say, Elijah, and others, that you're one of the prophets. Jesus said to them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said to him, you are the Christ. Then Jesus strictly warned them that they should tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and scribes, and then he would be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke this word openly. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus had turned around and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter, saying, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. The Gospels of Mark, Matthew, and Luke all record this account. Now, just prior to what we read here, Jesus and his disciples had been at the northern end of the Sea of Galilee uh, at Bethsaida. Here now, we read that they traveled further north to an area called Caesarea Philippi. It's about 25 miles further north and close to the ancient town of Dan. This was predominantly a Gentile area. Previously, Caesarea Philippi was simply a region, an area, and it had a long history of idol worship and the worship of false gods. Eventually, it became known as Paneus, named for the Greek god Pan. Pan was that Greek mythological figure being half man and half goat, played the flute. Today, we know about the Pan flute. was considered the god of nature and flocks. Allegedly, Pan was born in a cave in that region, so the pagans called the town Paneus after him. Inside that large cave and towards the back, there was a deep chasm with an underground water spring. In Jesus' day, a temple had been built in front of that cave and next to it as well. People would bring their animal sacrifices and other various offerings to worship Pan, dropping their sacrifices into that chasm in the back of the cave. That cave was believed to be by many the portal or entrance into hell deep below the surface. And I'd like to ask you to make a mental note of that, and I'll come back to it a little later. So today, you can visit that area, Caesarea Philippi. Uh, you can see that large cave opening, and uh, but there's only a small part of the temple foundation that still remains, the pagan temple. There's a little bit of a foundation in front of the opening of the cave, uh, most tour groups visit that area. It's not only beautiful, but it has this very important biblical story that we're reading about right now. And today, next to the cave and the hillside on the right, there are still numerous carve-outs, and those carve-outs functioned back then as shrines, and then statues of Pan and other idols were placed for the pagans to worship. Back in the early part of the first century, uh, King Herod's son, Philip, built a city close to the temple and the shrines, and it was named Caesarea in honor of Augustus Caesar. But since there was another city named Caesarea on the Mediterranean coast, this one became known as Philip Caesarea or Caesarea Philippi. There in the area of pagan idolatry with a long history of worshiping many false gods, 
Jesus asked his disciples two key questions. The first question was, who do men say that I am? Now, there were three names in particular that the disciples mentioned. Some say you're John the Baptist or Elijah, and then from Matthew's parallel account, they also said Jeremiah. Interestingly, John the Baptist and Jeremiah were both dead, while Elijah had been caught up to heaven hundreds of years earlier. So the most popular opinions of who Jesus was didn't include anyone still living, but rather resurrected prophets. John the Baptist had been killed, you recall, by Herod Antipas, who had him beheaded. We read about that back in Mark 6. Ironically, when Herod heard about the many miracles of Jesus after John the Baptist was executed, he became afraid and he publicly concluded that Jesus was John the Baptist risen from the dead. Many agreed with him and were saying the same thing. Others, though, said it was Elijah or one of the other prophets. And so now in this story, those opinions are still holding strong. Some thought that Jesus was the prophet Elijah, and of all those opinions, at least this one had a tiny bit of merit. For one thing, Elijah had been carried up to heaven, as I mentioned, and had not died physically. Secondly, Malachi's Old Testament prophecy included God stating that he would send Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord to turn the hearts of the people back to God. Ironically, remember when Jesus was dying on the cross and praying to the Father and some of those standing by thought he was calling out for Elijah. Whatever Jesus did and whatever Jesus said, he was usually misunderstood. And so once again, we have to ask the question, do we get him? The third popular opinion, again, bringing in Matthew's parallel account, was that Jesus was Jeremiah. Now, that's interesting for the simple reason and question, why Jeremiah? Matthew has the disciples' response as Jeremiah or one of the prophets, and here it's just simply one of the prophets. So the question is, why single out the prophet Jeremiah as opposed to, say, well, you know, Isaiah or Ezekiel? Well, here's one possible reason. When King Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians laid siege to Jerusalem in the Old Testament, before they destroyed the city and the temple and took many captives back to Babylon, Jewish tradition states that Jeremiah the prophet took the Ark of the Covenant and hid it somewhere. After the Babylonian invasion into Jerusalem, which led to the 70-year captivity, we never read about that Ark of the Covenant in Scripture again. It just disappeared without a trace. Some suggest that it was destroyed, while others say that it's been hidden away. And according to the movie Raiders of the Lost Ark, it was tucked away somewhere inside a giant warehouse in Washington, D.C. But a popular Jewish belief is that the Ark is buried somewhere below the Temple Mount there in Jerusalem, where the temples once stood. The Jews believe that Jeremiah hid it there before the Babylonians could confiscate it or destroy it. Today, the Muslim Dome of the Rock sits over the site where those temples once stood. And some Jews then believe that Jeremiah would return and recover the ark. And so then the first question has been asked, and the disciples didn't hesitate to tell Jesus what other people were saying and, what, and who other people thought that he was. But then came the second question, far more personal and far more crucial, when he asked the disciples, but who do you say that I am? 
This was the moment of truth now for those disciples. They had been with Jesus for over two years, and Jesus was about a year away or so from the cross. They had seen his miracles. They had heard his messages. They had witnessed his ministry. They were certainly hoping that he was the Messiah, but were they ready to confess him as the Christ and as the Son of God? This is the most important question that every person will ever answer. Who do you say Jesus is? And unless you get him and understand who Jesus actually is, you'll never be able to confess him as Lord and Savior. You know, much like 2,000 years ago, there's no shortage of opinions about Jesus today. People have all sorts of crazy ideas about who Jesus was and is, and of course, there's still that other group of people, many others, who just don't believe in him at all. Well, speaking for the disciples, Peter spoke up and said, you are the Christ. Matthew 16 gives us uh, his fuller response. Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Christ is a Greek word for Messiah and literally means anointed one. Peter also affirmed that Jesus is God's only son, the son of the living God. If Jesus is anything less than Messiah or Savior, Lord, Creator, or God, then we don't get him. Our second point then in this second section is the confession of who Jesus is. As we ask the question, do we get him, the witness of those who were with him, who walked with him and saw his ministry firsthand, well, they declared that he was nothing less than God. We also remember the close friends of Jesus, Martha, Mary, and Lazarus, at whose house Jesus stayed while ministering in and around Jerusalem. Remember when Lazarus died, Jesus asked his distraught sister Martha if she believed that he was the resurrection and the life. Martha responded, much like Peter, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who has come into the world. And a short time later, the other sister, Mary, anointed the feet of Jesus for his burial, understanding that he was going to the cross to die. If we get him, then we understand and believe that he is Lord and Savior. Matthew 16 also records that on the foundation of Peter's inspired confession that Jesus is the Christ and the Son of God, Jesus stated he will build his church. Along with that, Jesus stated that the gates of Hades would not prevail against it. Now, that statement is oftentimes misunderstood because it reads and sounds like Jesus is saying that the gates of hell are going to come against his church, but they will not succeed. And while that fact is actually true, that's not what Jesus was actually saying there. In warfare, you don't use gates to attack, you use them to defend. So Jesus was saying that he would build his church upon the foundation of the truth that Peter had confessed, that Jesus is God and Messiah, and that the gates of hell would not prevail or be able to withstand the power and the purpose of his church. The Greek word used by Jesus is Hades rather than hell. Hades was the, I guess you could call it the pre-hell, and then hell or the lake of fire will eventually become the permanent place of torment and suffering for the devil. He'll go there first, and then the demons and all who reject God. Now let's go back to that cave in Caesarea Philippi and how I mentioned the widespread belief back then that it, that chasm in the back of the cave was the portal or entrance leading down to hell. 
the fact may have, uh, that fact may have been what prompted Jesus to make his statement about the gates of Hades. Because they're all standing in that area in Caesarea Philippi, in that place of false gods and Greek mythology, and where many people thought the entrance to hell was located. And Jesus asked the disciples who they believed he was, and then he declared that hell, maybe even pointing to that cave, that hell would not withstand the church that he would build. Not that the, now uh, that the disciples were confessing Jesus as the Son of God and as the Messiah, Jesus was ready to declare his overarching purpose to them. For the first time then, Jesus tells his disciples that as the Son of God, as the Messiah, he must suffer and die at the hands of the religious leaders, but after three days he would rise back up to life again. This was shocking and disturbing for the disciples to hear. Like the other Jews of their day, they were looking for a Messiah and king who would set up the kingdom of God on earth and deliver them from the oppression of Rome. Their expectations were for a conquering king, certainly not for a suffering savior. But of course, Jesus did not come to deliver them from slavery to Rome, but rather from slavery to sin. In verse 32, it says, he spoke the word openly, and the Greek word for openly is better translated clearly. The issue wasn't that Jesus was unclear, it's that what he was telling them was, for them, unimaginable. They simply couldn't fathom or process that Jesus was going to die and suffer. But have no fear, Simon Peter is here. (laughs) Peter then, once again, acting and speaking on behalf of the others, took Jesus aside in order to, well, you know, straighten him out. We read that Jesus or Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. The wording indicates that Peter literally took Jesus by the arm and pulled him aside to straighten him out. The Greek word there for rebuking Jesus is a very strong word, so Peter didn't hold back when he spoke his mind. Peter went from being a rock to being a stumbling block. After getting an A-plus on his confession about Jesus, Peter now gets a huge F on the follow-up. Reminds me of the student who complained to the teacher saying, I don't think I deserved an F on my paper. To which the teacher replied, well, I agree, but there wasn't a lower grade that I could give you. Now, in Peter's defense, he didn't understand the divine mission of Jesus in going to the cross. This, again, was the first time that Jesus, that we know of, that's recorded, that he told them about going to the cross and suffering and dying. So they're processing this. And while uh, Peter was being prideful and presumptuous, he was also reacting out of concern for Jesus, not wanting him to suffer or die. Even a year later in the Garden of Gethsemane, it would be Peter who pulled out a sword and attempts to defend Jesus when they come to arrest him. So you could say that his heart was in the right place, even if his brain wasn't fully engaged spiritually. Nevertheless, Jesus responded to Peter and really to all the disciples since Peter was speaking for them. And again, notice that Jesus didn't rebuke Peter by name, but rather he rebuked the devil instead saying, get behind me, Satan. That's because Satan was manipulating Peter to try and keep Jesus from going to the cross. As Pastor John MacArthur wrote, in a startling turnaround, Peter, who had just been praised as God's spokesman, was then condemned as Satan's mouthpiece. Clearly then, the devil was behind this. 
And we remember the temptation of Jesus by the devil in the wilderness. We remember that Satan offered him all the kingdoms of the world if Christ would bow down before him. Satan was offering Jesus a way around the cross and around his suffering. The devil said, bow down before me and you can forget about the cross. But Jesus rebuked the devil then and he rebuked him once again here. We also remember that after the devil had finished tempting Jesus in the wilderness, we read in Luke 4 that he left Jesus for the time being until he had another opportune time. Well, this was one of those opportune times for Satan to strike again, but once again the devil failed. Jesus also told Peter and the disciples, you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. When we disagree with God's truth, we agree with Satan's lies. In defense of Peter and the other disciples, how often have you and I had our hearts, I think, in the right place, but we were looking at the situation from our human perspective instead of God's divine perspective? Sometimes we analyze a situation and then come to our logical conclusions without understanding or knowing the mind of Christ. Hey, I have been guilty of this on many occasions. You know, the older I get, the more I find myself praying for God's will to be done rather than asking for specific requests. I simply just realize that I oftentimes don't know what God wants to do in a given situation, so I pray and ask for his will to be done. In closing, I firmly believe, based on the scripture, that God gets us. If you're unsaved, as I said earlier, God has gotten you from the very beginning, and it was he who created you. God understands your heart, your mind, your motives, your challenges, your weaknesses, your troubles, your fears, your hopes, and your sins. He gets us. So the better question is, do we get him? Do we understand that he is perfect holiness? He's love and grace and mercy and goodness. Do we understand that we were created to know him and to worship him for all of eternity? As someone well said, the two most important days in your life are the day you were born and then the day you find out why you were born. Come to Christ today and embrace him by faith as your Lord and Savior for the forgiveness of your sins and for the promise of eternity with him in heaven. God bless you.